Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I grew up in an Eisenhower world. Born in 1952 in a New Jersey suburb, facing the American flag to recite the Pledge of Allegiance each school day morning, I learned that the United States was the best country on earth, with liberty and justice for all. I didn't question why there were no black swimmers in our country club pool. I didn't question why the black lady who cleaned our house each week always called my mother Mrs. Small. But she was always just Etta to us. In 1963, when I was 10 years old, I turned on our black and white TV and saw something that changed my life. I saw black school children, some no older than I, in the streets of Birmingham, Alabama, demanding an end to segregation. I saw them viciously attacked by police dogs and knocked over by the force of water from fire hoses. My illusion of liberty and justice for all died that day, replaced by a determination to make things right. By the time I was a teenager, the interracial optimism and respectability politics of the civil rights era were giving way to black power and black pride. As a white kid, I wasn't sure what I could do. In 1967, at the start of my sophomore year in high school, my best friend was my black classmate, Emmett. At 15, we had neither the vocabulary nor the wisdom to talk productively about race. Listening to his grievances, trying to be sympathetic, one time I said, I understand. You will never understand, Emmett shot back. By the spring of 1968, we were barely speaking. Throughout my childhood, I had found solace in nature. I remember lying under a tree on idle summer days, gazing up at the blue sky through the dappling green canopy. Trees were my shelter, my sanctuary, my friends. I sought out whatever ponds and streams and marshes I could find. I signed up for Minnesota Outward Bound to paddle the Boundary Waters Wilderness, where I gathered reindeer moss to make soup and heard the cry of the wolf echoing across the lakes at night. When the first Earth Day in 1970 heralded the modern environmental movement, I answered the call. The problem of pollution was palpable, the need for action urgent. I didn't realize at the time that they gave me a convenient excuse to walk away from the challenge of racism. It was in fact the quintessence of white privilege to avoid the hard work and the difficult conversations of anti-racism because I could. 
when I volunteered at the recycling center, nobody called me a racist. Hiding behind what James Baldwin devastatingly disparaged as white innocence, I took the path of least resistance. Fortunately, while I was studying the literature of wilderness in college and training to be an environmental lawyer, people of color in frontline communities were tracing the lethal connections between pollution and racism. In the late 1970s, sociology professor Robert Bullard and his students mapped Houston's waste facilities and discovered that all five municipal dumps, six of eight public garbage incinerators, and three out of four private landfills were sited in black communities, even though African Americans made up only 25% of the population. In 1982, residents of mostly black Warren County, North Carolina, were dragged off to jail after lying down in front of dump trucks brimming with contaminated soil destined for a toxic landfill in their community. In 1987, under the leadership of Re Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis, Jr., the Commission for Racial Justice of the United Church of Christ published Toxic Wastes and Race in the United States. This groundbreaking study found that race, not income, was the single factor most predictive of the location of toxic waste facilities across the United States. Three out of five black and Hispanic Americans, the report revealed, lived in communities near an uncontrolled toxic waste site. Environmental racism, Dr. Chavis proclaimed, is an issue of life and death. It's not just some form of prejudice, he said, where someone doesn't like you because of the color of your skin. This is an issue that will take your life away if you don't get involved. By the 21st century, grassroots groups across the country, like Sustainable South Bronx, Philly Thrive, Louisiana's Bridge the Gulf, and Chicago's Little Village Environmental Justice Organization were giving voice to pollution's first victims and lifting up the linkages between inequality and the ecological crisis. Here in Massachusetts, ACE, Alternatives for Community and Environment, organizes Roxbury youth as environmental justice activists and offers toxic tours of Nubian Square that illuminate the legacy of environmental racism and classism along with victories won by local residents. Green Roots Chelsea campaigns for polluter, polluter accountability, equitable waterfront access, and climate resilience. Then came COVID-19 and the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. In the devastation it inflicts upon low-income people and communities of color, the pandemic looks a lot like the climate crisis compressed from decades into weeks. And the repeated killings of unarmed black people, often horrifically recorded on video, have finally brought home to whites what Americans of color have always known that our society is deeply infected by racism, both structural and personal. More and more people are seeing the fatal in interconnections of white supremacy, pandemic, and pollution. Climate change, 
Intensive agriculture, habitat destruction, and live markets have all distorted our relations with other species, unleashing viruses that jump from animals to human beings. Born of colonialism and conquest, our throwaway society throws away people as well. Long before COVID-19, people of color forced by poverty and housing discrimination into neighborhoods near highways and other sources of air pollution have suffered disproportionately from respiratory illness, which makes them more vulnerable to the coronavirus. They live in more crowded housing, they disproportionately hold jobs deemed essential even while underpaid, such as in sanitation, food services, and health care. They can't afford to stay safe by staying home. And to get to work, they often rely on public transportation despite the risk of infection. And once infected, people of color die at higher rates because they lack equal access to health care. Climate change, explains black essayist Mary Anais Hegler, takes any problem you already had, any threat you were already under, and multiplies it. It's time to talk about climate, she says, as the black issue it is. It's time to talk about how extreme heat begets extreme violence and how that can interact with an already extremely violent police force. It's time to talk, she says, about what happens in prisons, which often lack air conditioning as temperatures skyrocket. It's time to talk about what Hurricane Katrina revealed and what I can never, ever unsee. When disaster strikes, Hegler says, when disaster strikes, the power structure will either abandon us or turn even more sharply against us. When resources run low, we will have the least, and when we try to take what we need, we'll be labeled looters and shot on sight. It's time to talk about my biggest fear about the climate crisis, she says. It's not how will we treat each other. It's how will white people treat people who look like me. Last month, African-American marine biologist Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson issued a public appeal to white people who care about maintaining a habitable planet. I need you, Johnson said. I need you to become actively anti-racist. I need you to understand that our racial inequality crisis is intertwined with our climate crisis. If we don't work on both, we will succeed at neither. I need you to step up, please, because I am exhausted. Now is a time of reckoning and a time of opportunity. At the intersection of racism and pandemic and climate crisis, where do we begin to confront the challenges that beset us? I think, I think we begin by taking power seriously. A lot of white middle-class people like me seem to feel that change happens when reasonable arguments 
persuade reasonable decision makers to support reasonable policies. But the entwined histories of white supremacy, the environmental movement, and the pandemic all demonstrate that that reasonable assumption is an unreasonable illusion. If there is no struggle, said Frederick Douglass in 1857, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. This struggle may be a moral one, Douglas said, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Reading Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, I was brought up short by his definition of an activist. An activist, Dr. Kendi says simply, is one who has a record of power or policy change. Rut row. He's saying that no matter how many times I telephone my legislator, no matter how many demonstrations I march in, no matter how many tweets I tweet, none of these makes me an activist. Changing minds is not activism, Dr. Kendi says. An activist produces power and policy change, not mental change. If a person has no record of power and policy change, then that person, according to Dr. Kendi, is not an activist. By that exacting but reasonable standard, how many of us are even activists? Less than four months ago, I became executive director of Massachusetts Interfaith Power and Light. Founded two decades ago, Mass IPL provides conservation expertise and renewable energy services to houses of worship, and we're good at it. But we know it's not enough. Greening our congregations, however important, does not adequately confront the climate crisis nor does it address the systemic injustice that undergirds it. While continuing our conservation work, Mass IPL is moving to organize people of faith as an irresistible force for climate justice. My dream is to convene a faith in action team in every one of the 160 legislative districts in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to hold our legislators accountable for their votes and their follow through on Beacon Hill. If you'd like to learn more about Mass IPL, go into the chat box on Zoom, select Arlington Street from the drop down menu, and send your name and email address right there just submit it name and email address and if you'd like to hear more specifically 
about our Faith in Action teams, just add the initials FIAT, F-I-A-T, Faith in Action Team, after your email address, FIAT. Now, it will take months to get Faith in Action teams up and running statewide. But there's one thing you can do right now that could have a real impact. For two decades, community leaders have tried and failed to get an environmental justice bill through the legislature. But two weeks ago, on July 31st, the House of Representatives passed an amendment to its climate bill defining an environmental justice community, giving residents greater say in the permitting of new projects, and requiring consideration not just of new pollution, but of the cumulative impact of pollution already afflicting the neighborhood. That's the good news. The bad news is that the Senate climate bill contains none of those provisions, which means that a House-Senate conference committee will decide behind closed doors whether or not to include them. Please let your senator know you want the conference committee to keep the environmental justice language, including its acknowledgement of race, in that bill. So don't put it off until tomorrow. Call them today, even though it's Sunday, because you'll probably get voicemail anyway. If you don't have their number, call the State House at 617-722-2000 and leave voicemail. And if you don't know who your state senator is, just Google Massachusetts Find My Legislator. Thank you. Naima Peniman is a healer, a grower, an educator, and a performance artist. She's also the daughter of Unitarian Universalist minister Adele Smith Peniman. I'd like to close with what Naima Peniman wrote in memory of George Floyd. May our grief bring us closer to the truth, to each other, to our collective suffering and significance, to our rebellious radiance. Invoke the bravery of our ancestors, evidence that survival is possible because we are here. Feel the movement of air enter your nostrils. Feel your chest expand. Create more space around the heart. Open your throat. Fill your lungs. Become buoyant. Become quiet. Hear the steady pulse of your own drum. Become thunder. Become torrential rain. There's a knee on the neck of our precious reflection, lost to lack of breath. We need to breathe deeper. There's a virus multiplying at the speed of light, extinguishing our inhales. We need to breathe deeper. The lungs of the world are on fire, scorching the forests whose life work is to balance the atmosphere of our singular, sacred earth. 
We need to breathe deeper. Our children have asthma. Our grandmas are gasping. We need to breathe deeper. The machine is crashing. The empire is collapsing. We need to breathe through the contractions of this excruciating passage. Labor pain feels like dying, pushing into a ring of fire. But someone is wanting to be born and worth fighting for. Our wombs full of seeds and stars. Our blood full of seers and warriors. The conch is signaling ceremony and insurrection. Become lightning, striking its yes into the atmosphere. The winds are stirring the undertow of unspoken stories, the currents of unflinching change. We dedicate our lives to a world conducive to life. We commit our breath to a destiny where all of us can breathe. Amen, and blessed be. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.